Welcome to this week's episode of the Horrible Things Podcast. My name is Emma Sexton, and I am the host of this podcast where we basically just talk about murder, disasters that are made by people, and other things that just make you want to cringe. <laughs> Today, I am joined by... Andrew Buker. Yes, I'm very excited because we actually have just been talking for literally an hour before we even started recording, because... The podcast is bringing people together who have been separated for a very, very long time due to COVID. That's why you haven't been able to... Oh, that makes more sense. No, I was just ignoring you. Just ignoring you. Yeah, just ignoring us. I've been ignoring... (laughs) We actually haven't talked for five months. Um, It's not COVID-related whatsoever. Entirely (laughs) unrelated. Don't associate it with... Just take that out of your mind. So, Andrew, what's what's been going on in your life? How are you? But I've been doing well, actually. Honestly, honestly, there's like honestly nothing to complain about. There's I, everything's pretty great. I literally just watch movies and then go to work and then watch more movies and then join a podcast and then make movie and then watch another movie. And you're basically done with school. I actually wanted you to tell. So, Andrew just graduated high school, and I want you to talk about. Like, just super quick, tell people what the grading policy is for high schools in our city. Um, high schools in undisclosed city, um, in the whole <laughs> district, which is the city's neighboring as well, they basically decided you cannot get a lower grade than you had before they sent us home. So uh, effectively, that means we get, I, I get to embrace my senioritis and do absolutely nothing. And that's what... Uh, me and my peers have decided to do like I, I look at the the zoom calls or whatever platform we're using now and no one's on them <laughs> and my teachers Everyone's are there gone. just kind of just talking to themselves I feel kind of bad for the teachers because of that mm-hmm. I mean I, they're still getting paid the same I heard in other districts surrounding this one that teachers are getting pay cuts and stuff which doesn't make any sense because the way that I, I believe they they have it in in such a fashion where in the past they got the school got paid by the number of people who were there that so through tax money and now since there's no people there they thought that they were getting no money but I, I think they they worked it around where it's like the number of people who were attending is how much money they get now or maybe some districts it's like the the number of students attending online school but. I don't know. Like, I think their schools are probably going to remain online in the fall because that's what the college I am attending is doing. Which college? Are, wait, which college are you going to? Is it undisclosed I don't, I don't community feel, I, college? Undisclosed. I, I don't feel comfortable disclosing that in the is public it setting. Undisclosed community college, which I think it is. No, no comment. Okay, we'll talk about this later. My college actually isn't closing in the fall. They went, my... Uh, well, they, you don't know that for certain, but they no, have no I plans do. to be closed. The president like, of my school went on TV on two different stations and talked about our plan to not close down in the fall. So now if we do close down in the fall, we're going to look like a bunch of fools because he was well, yeah, up there talking about how easy it was going to be to stay open. But I go to a private school, so it's really small. And <laughs> like before... Well, I've been on that campus. There's so many people. But even before quarantine, my classes were usually from like 15 to maybe 25 people like at the most in any of my classes. So if they just moved us all to bigger lecture halls but kept the same class sizes, it would probably be pretty easy to for us to social distance. But I think if you go to UCLA or like Cal State Long Beach, somewhere where there's gigantic class sizes and thousands and thousands of students... Uh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense because you have like classes with 60 people in them. And it's just like, how yeah. would you even possibly social distance in that I think, situation? I think the funny thing is what people are so definitive. We are doing this in, we are opening that. It's like, I remember people always thought these things were sort of like Disneyland's only closing for two weeks. Like, no, they were only planning to close two weeks 
in order to extend that further so that they wouldn't look like they're falling back on their previous plans if they said like, oh, we're closed for six months and they open up four months into it. It's like you have to set guidelines that have an end where it's like when you're making a goal, it has to be like time oriented or it's like I'm going to do this by this time. And if not, you have like it's hard to to get to that opening up point if there's no like time. You can move that goalpost, but. I don't know. I think it's just hard because I every single week it feels like something new and ridiculous has happened, you know? So every week there's something something new to be concerned about or or good news like this week um in California and lots of parts of Orange County that we started phase 2, which basically means that they're opening restaurants for dine-in and they're doing like you're allowed to do some retail shopping now. And they're I work in a food service, and in food service, like so that they the, the governor is like okay dine in with some other regulations of course, and people the day that happened they marched in they're like can we dine in I'm like no sorry we can't dine in right now because that's company policy because we we had that policy before the governor put that in place. And then people get mad at me. I'm like, yo, I'm a cashier. Like, what do you expect <laughs> me to do? Like, oh, oh, you're complaining. Therefore, I'm going to magically bring seating back. It's like, I don't know. It, people get so mad. It's like, the governor said you can. Like, okay, my boss said I can't. <laughs> and I they're s- the one who signs my check, not Gavin Newsom. <laughs> I saw this really funny tweet yesterday, which said, you never know the depths of human incompetence until you work in food service or retail. Oh my gosh. <laughs> people are like, people are so mean to me. I'm like, <laughs> I once got whipped cream thrown on me when I worked at in food service. I made this lady an ice cream sun. This just got pulled out of the depths of my brain. I think I've been See, repressing that's, it. That's like battery. You can like, you can press like severe charges. I wasn't that, that, it was just like this middle aged lady and she was with her daughter and all her daughter's friends. And her Karen. daughter. Yeah, pretty much. Her daughter and her daughter's friends ordered milkshakes, which were like really easy to make. So we made them easily. And I was the only person working the fountain. So like making ice cream stuff. So her daughters all got milkshakes. So I made all their milkshakes. And then she ordered this like ice cream sundae thing, which was hard pack ice cream. So like I had to go and physically scoop it. And when I went to go get the ice cream, everything was like completely frozen solid. And I was like, oh, Lord. So I had to wait and like have the ice cream scoop heat up. And by the time that I got her her Sunday, like her daughters had already gone outside and they were like walking around outside. And she was mad because she felt like her kids had left her behind in the restaurant. So when (laughs) I gave her the Sunday, she grabbed it and then put her hands in the whipped cream and then flicked it onto me. And she was like... I am not paying for this. And she like walked out of the store and I was just like, oh, oh my gosh. I was so like shocked because no one had ever, I mean, people had been rude, but no one had ever thrown something on me. But my manager was like, no, you're fine. You're chilling. It's just a crazy person. Don't worry about that stuff. <laughs> so the it was worst, okay. The worst kind of people to come into the restaurant of which I work that will be undisclosed are the delivery DoorDash postmates grub hub they like sometimes you'll get a super nice one who's super understanding who probably worked food service at, at some point but then you get people who come in and they're just they've this is their only job they've ever worked or they've they've just moved here and this is their only experience in the states which is fine like i'm not saying anything against that but they come in with this expectation of how they're going to be treated where it's like I, I'm, I treat them like a peer and a coworker because that's essentially what they are. We are effectively paying them to, to do a job and they come in and they're, they're just mean to me. I'm like, dude, I, I cannot summon the food. The food will be out in a minute. <laughs> like calm down. Like this dude started yelling and cussing at us. And it's like, we, like I had to kick him out of the restaurant and you, and like, of course he's like, I'm a DoorDasher. I'm like, I don't care. You have to leave. Like, cause people were uncomfortable. You started yelling at this like small girl who works like, at an uh, undisclosed restaurant. And it's like, I feel like they just all have so much entitlement to be mean, but some of them are like the nicest people. So it's really hard. <laughs> it's like you, you have to like, be like, okay, is there, are they going to, are they going to yell at me or are they going to be super nice? So you have to like, I think the thing about like DoorDash and all those is that they give you 
the weird thing about it is they want you to get the food fast, but because of that, there's little checkpoints you have to cross off. So like when you accept the job, you have to press a thing. You're you have a timer for if you don't get to the restaurant in this amount of time, like you lose the job. And then once you get to the restaurant, you have a timer for this amount of time before until you have to pick up the food. And if you don't pick up the food by then, they give the job to someone else. So, mm, But the issue is, is that like, for example, on I work in a, a Mexican restaurant, right? And it was Cinco de Mayo and Taco Tuesday this year, fell on the same day. Oh dear. And we were very, <laughs> very behind on our to-go's. And they would come in and it's like, you're supposed to prioritize DoorDash. I'm like, actually, we're not. Uh, that's not a thing. And like, it's going to be late. You can call the customer, have them cancel the order, or you can wait. And then they get like, I'm like, I entirely understand that they get paid in the number of jobs that they do, but it's like yelling at us. The only thing that, that being mean to food service workers does is make your food take longer. <laughs> doesn't get you anything. May, might get you a free meal. And, but I don't know. I just think it's immoral. I think, it, yeah, you just got to respect it's a tough time for everyone, so I feel like everyone needs to be extra understanding and kind to people, especially people who are essential workers, because it's like, you don't know if it's, I mean, you have to think about the fact that every person at your local grocery store, at your local food service place, they're all, you know, trying to be safe and things might be slower because they're trying to keep everything safe for you. So. This lady yelled at me for not wearing my mask on my break when I was away from everybody. I was like a good 10 feet away from everybody in the, like the break area. And I was eating my dinner <laughs> and like, sir, you need to be wearing a mask. All food service employees need to be wearing a mask. I'm like, ma'am, I'm on my break. And I just kept yelling at me. I'm like, my manager wasn't there. So I'm like, I couldn't just say like, manager, please take this for me. I want to, I want to, I'm like on an eight hour shift here. I need to break. And then they're like, you need to wear a mask, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I don't. Can I please eat my burrito? Yeah, it would be really hard to eat food with a mask on. Unless, yeah, have you seen those that. videos of people who cut holes in their mask? Oh, and I I'm love like, that. That, that's just not correct. Just don't do that. <laughs> just take it off. It's the buddy, same uh, effect if you do that. Unless you put buddy, like a seal on it. A buddy at work was so tired that like he, he had his mask on and he started to eat his food and he just like smears food all over his mask because he didn't realize he was still wearing it. Oh dear. But on to the horrible thing. That on is to the horrible thing. Yes. Let's talk about a I survived slash hostage story. I am very excited to do this one because actually, so one thing I have noticed in quarantine is more and more people tell <laughs> that I know, especially being like, I listened to the podcast for the first time. I'm like, why do you want to <laughs> listen to more horrible things? But I'm glad you listened to it. So It makes you realize how good you actually have it when it's like, oh no, I have to stay inside and watch movies all day when while these people get murdered. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But a lot of people who've been listening to it, one of them especially was like, you need to do more I Survive stories. So then I was like, okay, I'll do it. And so that's what we're doing today, an I Survive story. And I believe you've been on one other I Survive story, right? Yes, I have. Jennifer Holiday. The one where um, the lady convinced the, the Jennifer Holiday. Yeah, Jennifer Holiday. Yes, I... Or as we say in the States, Jennifer Vacation. <laughs> that was a really good... Um, case actually i people often tell me that they liked that one and it is because that's a very fascinating case but the one we have today is also really just wild so i'm excited to get into it we should actually probably get into it right away because it's literally like seven pages of notes so let's get into this <laughs> okay so it's june of 1999 and we're in norristown pennsylvania fun fact I'm related to William Penn, who founded Pennsylvania. My grandma's maiden name is Penn, and is that I've all never the, been all of the information you know is just that it's her maiden name, or is it like? Oh no, they have like the records and stuff. She has all these old genealogy books, so it is like that William Penn. But we lost the last name a generation ago, two generations ago from me. So sad boy hours, but it's okay. And now and you're on the other side of the country. Now I'm on the other side of the country, and I've never been to Pennsylvania, but anyway. So, 
Maria Jordan is the head of nursing at Norristown State Mental Institution, which is basically the largest mental institution in Pennsylvania. And she started noticing that one of her staff was acting really strange. Uh, He was a registered nurse and his name is Dennis. I'm going to butcher his last name, even though I heard it eight times. Chizowski. No. Chikowski. That's how it is. Chikowski. Okay. So Dennis Chikowski, and he's been working at the hospital for more than a decade as a nurse, but Maria is his superior. And over time, as they're like, they were having more and more interactions, she basically just began to feel like, okay, I just know that this guy wants to hurt me because his behavior was really weird and unpredictable and other members of the staff felt really uncomfortable about him. And as time went on, as he'd been working at the hospital longer and longer, he started not showing up to work. He was rude to patients, rude to other members of the staff. And he was always talking about the fact that there was like a conspiracy with the hospital that went like all the way up to the highest levels of state government. (laughs) And in August of 1997, uh, okay, so here's... A weird fact about this. Um, I read this article, which was giving me all these facts that I couldn't find in any other articles. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Then I read the bottom and it was like, it was kind of strange because it was written less like an article, more like a story. And I was kind of confused. So then I went to the bottom and it was like, all this information is based on uh, listening to tapes of maria jordan speak and listening to trial tapes and i was like okay so i believe it but i'm also not 100 percent sure that this next fact is true because i feel like yeah it's it seemed like a little bit of speculation in there but you know can never be sure but basically this article that may or may not have been true but i'm pretty sure it was true said that in august his um tchaikovsky's dad showed up at the hospital and was talking about how his son believed that there was this conspiracy that went up to the state government and that he would go to his house and wouldn't speak to him because he would like Tchaikovsky would say that his dad's house was bugged with listening devices because of this conspiracy. But also Dennis Tchaikovsky was a paranoid schizophrenic and a heroin user. Two things that do not go together well. And just in case anyone doesn't know, I the definition of what paranoid schizophrenia is, is basically some of the symptoms are of it are delusions and hallucinations. And one of the side effects is kind of that it's hard for people with paranoid schizophrenia to blur the line between what's real and what's not real. So it makes it a lot harder to kind of understand reality as the rest of us do, because you're not sure what's real, what's fake. But because of that, um, Dennis believed that Maria was part of the CIA and she was out to get him. And she was really fearful, like just being around him made her really scared for her life. So she started to take action. And eventually uh, she, after putting in complaints and testifying along with a couple other of her co-workers, the state of Pennsylvania eventually fired Dennis and he was refused counseling. And hospital security were given his face and name and they were told to keep him away but they really weren't like the best they're just these kind of they're just unarmed security guards that were there to like make sure no one got out usually not necessarily to keep people from getting in so and not to mention that there were literally 1200 there were 1200 people on staff actually no i think that i mixed this up I wrote that there were 1,200 people on staff and 600 patients. I think there were 1,200 patients and 600 people on staff. No, I I was probably right the first time. 1,200 staff members, 600 patients. So there were a lot of people in that building for these security guards to be keeping track of. And because of that, two months later, Dennis came back to the hospital and he basically just walked right in the door just right in the door despite the fact that he was all members of security were alerted that he was not supposed to be there so he just walks right in to where maria's office is and at 11 15 a.m uh maria sees him this is 
June of 1999, Maria sees him walk into the hospital and he's carrying a gun. And she talked about the fact that the gun looked like a toy. He's carrying a loaded Civil War era pistol, which is why this gun looked like a toy. And he also, uh, you know that like the weird article I was talking about that may or may not be true. It also said that he had a bodyguard with him. Um, I'm not sure if this is true. I, it said that he had hired a bodyguard before going in and that the bodyguard like came with him into the building. And I would just make it more complicated to accomplish what, like, I feel like being sneaky is the only way to break into this building, but bringing (laughs) a big security guard may not be the most effective move. Honestly, it's just kind of weird because the article also said, okay, so I'll give you one other weird fact about the bodyguard, but in a second. So he basically went into Maria Jordan's office, uh, the woman who had helped get him fired and who had said he was making her really uncomfortable, like months, two months before. He asked her if she was, quote, ready to start telling the truth, end quote. And then she said, what are you talking about? And then he shot her four times from four feet away literally point blank he just shot her where both of her wrists her foot and her chest and she started screaming and he told her to shut up like he told her she needed to be quiet and threatened her with a gun and she talks about the fact that she could feel everything like she didn't go into shock right away she felt every single bullet hole but she kept quiet because she was scared that she was gonna lose her life and in her office with her was one of her other coworkers named Carol Kepner. And she looked at Carol and she just talked about the fact that she like she could just see from Carol's face how bad it was. And then Maria looked at her wrist and she could see her bones literally from in one of her wrists, just from the bullet, obviously from the bullet wound going through her body. And she talked about that in that moment, pretty much all she was thinking was like, will I, will I ever see my husband again? You know, like, what am I going to get out of this live? And she was pretty certain that she was going to die. And the weird fact that the article told me was that the bodyguard was there and that, um, Dennis was like, you're hired by me. So you stay here and take notes on everything I'm going to say. And that the bodyguard did that despite seeing him shoot someone. And then, Dennis let the guy go, but I didn't hear I about that in like a, any other account. So I was I like, think that may be like a fictionalization, like like a historical fiction, I guess, where they just change it up a bit. Because that doesn't maybe. seem that doesn't seem likely, and the fact that no other sources really say. I know that. it feels like one of those Reddit things where you read it and you're like, "Ooh, this would be kind of cool if it was true," but then you're like, "But it's probably not. It's almost yeah. definitely not true." But you know, no. it's fun to imagine. Anyway, so now it's 11.20. This whole attack started at 11.15. So within five minutes, Maria has already been shot four times. And she talks about the fact that after a couple minutes, she's basically just checking the clock over and over again just to make sure she's alive. And one of the things she said that I actually thought was kind of funny is she was talking, she said, I'm a vain person. So I just remember looking down and being like, this is a brand new pair of shoes. Damn it. And I was like, imagine okay. having that, that kind of humor. There's no way. No. There's no way that she had. Like, I feel like that's something you make up after. the fa- Okay, the fact that she said that, oh, I didn't go into shock and I was so vain about my shoes. I don't know. It seems like, it sounds like a little kid who's telling a story and he's like making himself sound like he's like way cool. I don't know. I'm not like trying to take anything away from her. I don't know. I feel like it would but be it better feel- to go into shock. Yeah, I know, I know, but it, it makes her sound tough and it makes her sound like tough that she said, oh, my shoes are ruined. <laughs> I don't know. I think that the, of course, it's very well possible, but I just didn't feel like that makes Maybe sense. she has an incredibly high pain tolerance. Like I would just. She's just so vain that all she could focus on was her shoes. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny that she said that. I was like, imagine that kind of humor that you have to have to think about your shoes when you're literally being held in a hostage situation but i mm. thought that was funny i think it's because like nurses and hospital staff they have to be very level-headed they have to be very like they have to they see a lot of stuff and like they can't let the emotions of the things that they see affect them which is why like every nurse i know is a badass and they're all True. like they don't let anything phase them like they see people die 
so like they know what they're doing like they're always calm cool and collected some of them are some of them aren't <laughs> like that's uh, what you want if i saw a, do- a doctor panic i would be so freaked out i would ask for another doctor because it's like it's not so much like the reason the reason why they're panicking it's the fact that they're panicking in the first place yeah it's like you don't do good work when you're panicking and i don't know i don't know i think like to be kind of what you were saying just to be a good leader like to be a doctor to be someone who's charged with taking care of other people like you can't let anyone know you're scared you know you can't you can't let Mm. anyone know that something's going wrong you got to be just level-headed straight face no problems here which is why i could Mm. never be a doctor because i like literally if something's wrong you read it on my face (laughs) It's the same thing that I've noticed with like video production too. It's like when stuff's going wrong, you can't be like freaked out because if you're freaked out, you lose the show. Well, that's why what I like about because my job, other than this, if you guys possibly don't know, I don't think I've talked. Wait, about wait, this you before. get paid to do this show? Oh, I wish, I wish. <laughs> but um, my job, other than this, is that I direct video for a church, and like when things go terribly wrong. I feel like I'm really good now at keeping my voice very calm and then turning it off and being like, ah, and my poor graphics person can see that I'm like pacing. I'm totally panicking, but no one on my camera crew can tell because I'm, my voice is is like chilling. I'm just like, no, nothing can phase me. The screens turn off. We keep going. Like everything (laughs) turns off. We keep going. That's just... Yeah, it's kind of funny, but I could never be a doctor because you could read my face. Like, if you guys saw my face while doing camera, you'd be concerned. (laughs) I have a similar experience with, like, food service where it's, like, people are, like, yelling and being, like, so mean to you. And you're just, like, already your food's going to be out in five to ten minutes. Oh, how can I help you? It's, like, (laughs) I'm not mad at all. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to get in my car and start screaming. Those are the those are the stories you tell later. Food service makes you age like ten years in the space of one. It just makes you get the angriness of an old person, but like <laughs> not the, ex- the life experience, just the bitterness. Oh dear, <laughs> just the bitterness. That's but I still sad. recommend everyone do food service because yeah, you, know, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about yourself about being a part yeah. of the team. Anyway, so. <laughs> back to the bad guys. Okay, so Maria is just sitting there just telling herself to keep thinking because he's this guy is just off the rails. He's screaming at her because he's saying that she knows what's in his mind and he wants an investigation into his firing because he believed it was all part of a conspiracy. And basically, he just didn't notice at all that she was literally bleeding to death on the floor of her office. But Luckily, a hospital worker saw what was happening and called the police, and they arrived really quickly after Dennis started holding Carol and Maria hostage. And SWAT was, like, surrounding the building. And, like, at this point, there's really nothing they could do because they didn't know anything about the situation. So someone got on the phone with Kajowski and was talking to him, but he wouldn't listen to anything, like... Everything that they were saying was just making him angrier because he believed that the government was part of a conspiracy. So obviously he didn't trust the police. And after about six hours, Maria is still sitting in her office with Carol and he's still holding the two women hostage in the hospital. They evacuated everyone else, but SWAT's still outside and he's still demanding that the CIA investigate his firing. If he believed that the CIA was out to get him, why would he think that the CIA would do an investigation against the CIA? You know what? I'm going to He is schizophrenic, I'm guess so I'll little, give him that. Yeah, I was going to say I'm going to wager a guess here that he um didn't really care about the holes in his story. <laughs> he was okay with it. But Maria talked about the fact that she wanted to fight back, but she, at this point, obviously she had lost so much blood that it would have been pretty much impossible for her to fight back. And she felt responsible for Carol because uh, Carol was one of her, like, she was, Maria was Carol's superior, so she didn't want to take the chance of hurting either of them. And eventually, they'd been in the office so long that it was nighttime, and could, uh, 
Tchaikovsky was like, I need you guys to bring in food. He'd still been on the phone with everyone who was trying to get the hostages out. He's still been on the phone with them. And he's like, I want you to leave food outside of the office building or I'm going to kill both these women. And Maria was talking about that she they left bologna sandwiches, potato chips and iced tea. And she just <laughs> talked about the fact that she was like, if this is going to be my last meal, like I'm I'm not going to eat because I don't want to give I don't want to have the last thing I eat be something that this person like got kind of so she was being very like defiant and just not wanting to give in wanting to make sure that she stayed alive because literally she was shot at point blank range four times and Wait, she what, was still like, alive region, what region of the u.s was this in again this is in pennsylvania pennsylvania of course yeah i remember now <laughs> of course of Question course mark? well no because i remember now because you were talking about pennsylvania you know you're talking about pennsylvania earlier mm-hmm. but it did slip my mind for a second all right I don't understand that kind of behavior. Of course, she's like in some sort of shock because she was shot four times. But it's like, it doesn't matter who got the food. I feel like eating is something that could be beneficial. I don't know. It depends on the situation, of course. But. I think she, it's also partially because she really thought she was going to die. You know, she really mm-hmm. thought she wasn't going to make it through the night. So basically, she just felt really, really lonely and really scared when night fell because Honestly, the thing that I can't imagine is just being shot four times. Like, how frustrated I would be if I'd been shot four times and SWAT was right outside and it had been pretty much over six hours that I'd been here bleeding to death. Oh, she's still conscious at, after six hours of being shot four times. One in the, in the chest, nonetheless, too. Uh, Everything, all the bullets missed, like, her major arteries you know was he doing that on purpose just to make her suffer i don't think so i think it was accidental i think it was completely accidental because i think obviously he didn't shoot at places that you believe are vital like he shot her wrists and her foot so i think that was just to put her in pain but he also shot her in the chest um but he shot her in the chest like closer to her shoulder than her heart so I think partially he might have been doing it just as a tactic to make her feel pain um, and get her to tell him about the conspiracy that he believed was going on. But she was still losing a lot of blood because when it at night, that's when she started getting the shakes and like getting really cold. And that's because she was starting to go into shock. And obviously that was because of her blood loss. And so Carol like got her a jacket, like a super light jacket and During the night, Carol and Maria were handcuffed together, and Maria talked about the fact that during the night, obviously, he was in the office with them, and while they were, you know, trying to go to sleep, uh, Carol would, like, squeeze Maria's hand, and she said that that right there meant the world to her because it was, like, the little bit of human connection of, like, the one person who could understand what she was going through you know saying I'm she here. wasn't shot she was perfectly healthy at that point right carol the other girl yeah yeah she hadn't been shot but she was still obviously being held hostage um never fun not not something you want to do but maria on the other hand said i'm not going to go to sleep until i die like she basically was she felt that if she fell asleep she wouldn't wake up so she stayed up pretty much the entire night and we're going to fast forward a little bit here because there was, you know, time where they slept. But in 33 hours into being held hostage or fast forward uh, of bleeding out too. did this, she, she, was a, she was medically trained. So did she do anything to like slow the bleeding? Well, the thing is that um, Carol was a nurse, but she was more of a therapist in the mm. mental hospital than a like actual nurse who could patch up a bullet hole. And Maria was also a nurse, but again, more like a therapist and an administrator. So she didn't have any like medical hospital experience. So neither of them could really help patch her up. But um, by the end of the second day that they were to like in this office, 33 hours, Maria was really struggling. She had she was feeling like more pain than she'd ever felt in her life. And what Carol was doing to help her was she was trying to use like her nursing abilities to try to appeal to this guy's humanity by being like, can't you see that she's losing blood? Can't you see that she's cold? Can't you see that she's dying? And trying to like kind of talk him out of 
keeping them there, kind of trying to talk him into letting them go. But he just didn't care. Like, he never responded to any of these things. He was completely oblivious or just not, you know, he didn't have enough humanity to to let them go, even though. Because he was a schizophrenic who already decided that he was willing to murder somebody. Yeah. And I think it's it's just tough because, again, I think it's the combination because I don't think every person that has paranoid schizophrenia is like, obviously not every person that has schizophrenia is like this. My grandpa had schizophrenia and he never tried to kill anyone. So I think <laughs> it's the combination of having schizophrenia and also being a heroin addict that caused this to happen. It, and also just him already struggling with thinking that there was a conspiracy of people wanting to kill him. So, yeah, it's just absolutely crazy. And he, yeah, like I said, he just didn't care. Uh, eventually, he, when he went to sleep, he would tie Maria and Carol to him so that if they tried to leave, he would feel it and he would wake up. And he still had this gun. And Maria talks about the fact that both of them were so scared to, like, make any single movement because they didn't want him to think that they were trying to escape because they were pretty sure that if they tried to escape, he was just going to shoot them. And the other thing she talked about was that she didn't understand what was taking the police so long. She's like, I've been in here for 33 hours, more than a day. Like, there, and SWAT was still outside this entire time, like, all 33 hours. So she was just getting frustrated because she didn't understand what was, you know, what was the holdup. And by Friday morning, this is two days of negotiations. This is day three, basically. She was held, started to be held hostage um, Wednesday, kind of in the afternoon, all evening, all day Thursday, and now it's Friday morning. And the police are starting to become very concerned in their negotiations because um, Joukowsky at first was calling Jordan and Kepner, he was calling them uh, witnesses. Like he would say they were witnesses to the conspiracy and all this stuff. But by the third day, he started calling them suspects in the conspiracy. Like these women are suspects in the conspiracy against me. And they noticed that change in language and that made them think that he was probably getting more agitated and more violent. And he refused to let the police or uh, Carol's family or Maria's family speak to them. And another thing that he was doing is that Maria and Carol talked about the fact that when they like wanted to use the bathroom, they had to use a trash can and he would watch them and he would like threaten them. And so it's just not, like, at this point, it's just, he's getting more and more violent instead of calming down as the time goes by. And in the morning, there's a bullhorn at the hospital, and it woke up all three of them after they've been sleeping, because obviously Maria didn't try to stay awake for three days once this got into a longer thing. And I just want to point out, three days of having four bullet wounds and no help. And she's still alive. What? What? That's almost like getting shot. That's like getting shot one and a third times a day for three days. It's just crazy to me because I think about the fact that even if you get shot in the wrist, like you got a lot of veins in there, my friend. How is it possible that you're not ble- literally bleeding out because of that? It's just insane to me that without any medical help, she survived three days with four close range bullets wounds like to be shot from four feet away what i think a lot of that's to do with how strong-willed she was she was like she would not back down like as she said already like she didn't want to go to sleep she she refused to and then she refused to eat the food she refused to do these things because she was like so strong-willed on she had such a strong will to live i think that was a really big factor for sure because she also i mean she talked about the fact that she wanted to stay alive because she needed to, I mean, she was thinking about like her family, you know, her husband. And she even talked about how she was thinking about her dog and her cat, even like that. She wouldn't get to see them any again if she died, you know, and it's just, yeah, it's crazy. But that Friday morning, the bullhorn in the hospital woke all three of them up. And so Dennis untied the women from him and the room was really dark. So uh, no one, 
in the room quite knew what time it was because they'd shut down the electricity in the hospital and the curtains were closed. So it was kind of just dark all the time. They weren't exactly sure how, you know, time was passing. They just knew it had been a very, very long time that they'd been in this office. And Maria talked about the fact that all of a sudden that Friday morning, she hears a really large crash because the SWAT team had broken a window so that they could get a better view. Like they broke a a window in the building so that they could get a better view of what was going on in the office. However, after they broke the window, then things started happening really, really, really fast. So all of a sudden, Dennis goes to the corner of the office and he's kind of crouching behind the women. And as soon as he hears the, you know, the breaking of the glass, he just starts open firing in this office. And he, like, he shoots um, Carol twice more. Once in the chest again and once more in her abdomen. And she talked about the fact that she could feel the bullet lodge into her spine, like when he shot her. And... So he shoots her twice more. Now Carol's been shot six times. And as soon as SWAT hears the the shots going off, they start coming into the building because that's a, at the point where they realize like, okay, there's, yeah, there we just need to go in. There's no more waiting around. So SWAT gets into the building and she, like Maria looks up and she can see members of the SWAT team are above her yelling like, get out, get out, trying to tell her to get out of the room. And she's like, yeah. I, I wish I could. I've been shot six times, you assholes. But then she st- she told like she told um in this interview that she was in, she talked about how she remembered like her how she used to do swimming and she started literally crawling using like a swim stroke so that she could get out of there without use of basically her legs at all and with one t- place where she'd been shot twice in the chest. But she starts crawling and she eventually got out of the office but before she got out of the office she heard one more shot but she didn't feel anything and that's because at that point in time carol had been shot in the head by uh and she had actually died and she was pronounced dead on the scene from a bullet wound in her head and uh a lot of people obviously have criticized the way that the police handled this because they knew that he was getting more agitated over the phone. They knew that he seemed a lot more upset when they were talking to him. So a lot of people questioned their decision to break the window because they were like, well, if you knew he was agitated, why would you break a window? Because wouldn't you think that would set him off? But um, police captain Thomas LaCrosse said that It's actually normal police procedure to break a window in order to see better. And in Pennsylvania, at least before this, they'd never had anyone who started opening open firing because of a broken window. But again, they also probably never had a heroin addict um, holding two women hostage in a mental hospital. So people didn't at first the police didn't realize like what had happened. They didn't realize that. You know, that Carol had been shot, but. Um, after they were able to, right away, they arrested uh, Chukowski, and that's when they were able to pronounce Carol dead on the scene, which is just really sad because, like, of the two of them, I'm so happy at least one of them got out of there, you know, because Maria Jordan does survive, but it just sucks because the whole time through, you just think Carol's going to be okay, you know, because she didn't get shot in the beginning, and then all of a sudden at the very end, like she basically lived the last three days of her life in fear, which is just sucky. But uh, yeah, Carol Kepner was pronounced dead on the scene and Dennis was subdued by SWAT right away. Um, Maria was flown to a medical hospital because she obviously couldn't walk. They didn't want to take the time to transport her in the car. And she'd been a hostage for 45 hours. And when she got to the hospital, that's when she found out what had happened to Carol and she said that she'll never forget Carol who was a wonderful person and was there for her obviously in those last days um and another thing that's kind of interesting about the police work in this case is that they later found out the reason that they didn't go in earlier is because they didn't realize that Maria had been shot they thought that the first four shots 
actually five shots because um, Chukowski fired into the air once and then shot Maria four times at the very beginning. They thought that he had fired five shots into the air. So the whole time they were waiting outside, this was a 45-hour hostage situation. They were in that office for 45 hours, and they, the whole time, no idea that she'd been shot, even though they were literally on the phone with Dennis Chukowski the entire time. Like, it's ridiculous. Certainly a learning experience for the police. (laughs) I know. I'm like, bro, isn't there a way to check that? Like, they weren't, he wasn't letting them on the phone with the women to see how they were doing. But, like, isn't there a way to see if there's, like, a bullet hole in the ceiling or something like that? Isn't there a way? I think it's reasonable to assume that, like, in a situation like that, shots fired equals injury at least yeah don't you think this guy who was fired for threatening people would come in and maybe he might just shoot someone who he had like very negative feelings for before he was fired like the fact that it didn't even seem to cross their mind if i was maria jordan i would be pissed i'd be like okay i was in here for 45 hours and i've been shot six times and y'all just stood outside the building for literally 45 hours while I was bleeding to death. I would be pissed. Again, like, I understand they didn't know. They didn't know that the four shots had been fired at Maria. But still, like, I feel like you got to take that extra precaution and just assume the worst, you know? At that Mm -hmm. point, if you don't know, it's better to just assume that something bad has happened than to assume that he just fired five warning shots into the air, you know? You know? doesn't make sense to me but whatever. Then at the same time i don't have years of police training and experience so i don't know i think it's really easy to criticize the actions of a professional but at the same time it's like i'm not in the same field as them so i or them i don't really know the exact full story and the i don't know the information that they knew so it's like to them that they were acting morally and to their training which i think is all you can ask for yeah i don't know i think you can ask for more i think well it's like i think you can they ask- only had so much information and i know it's like they they should have assumed these things and like that's something that they can learn from it's like i don't know if they would have done something differently i don't know i don't know they certainly would have done it differently if they knew that she was shot maybe but still to me it just seems kind of like bad police work because They talked about the fact that they knew Dennis was getting more agitated and more violent, yet they broke a window right next to where he was, and then he started open firing, and, you know, Marie got shot twice more, Carol Carol was killed. Like, it seems to me that there were, and this is the way it usually is when I see police work that I'm like, that's a little bit sketchy. I feel like it's usually them just trying to do the best they can without a grasp on the situation. But at the same time, it's like one or two bad decisions can really like make or break a situation, you know, like two pretty bad decisions can cause something really terrible versus the great police work I've seen where it's like, you know, they're doing everything by the book, by the book. And then it's like two really great decisions or two really great like where they chose to follow their instincts can lead to like a whole case being solved. So, yeah, I'm obviously... I'm sure they were doing the best they could, but, you know, it's obviously still a bummer. But something that's not a bummer, something that I'm very happy about, is that Dennis Chukowski was found guilty of murder, and he is currently serving a life sentence in Pennsylvania. Uh, Something interesting is that he pleaded self-defense at the trial. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He claimed That 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 the incident that the hostage situation was completely justified because there was a conspiracy against his life. Imagine being his attorney. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you I, I do wish I, I, what? I, I, can you pull up the um, court records here? I will send, I'll send you the article. Can, I just, can you imagine being that attorney and being like, you want to do what now? Yeah, you I would have like, huh? just been like, I would have just thrown the case, you know, just been like, that's illegal. <laughs> Sorry. No, thank you. Yeah. You know, I don't feel comfortable (laughs) proceeding with this case. And I want to read you these two quotes that he said during the trial. He said, quote, I'm not a killer. I never hurt anyone in my life. End quote. 
And then after Maria Jordan gave her entire testimony, he was like, quote, I'll do everything I can to bring out the truth, end quote, about what happened. Talking about his conspiracy. Like, he literally didn't let, he didn't think that what he did was wrong whatsoever. And after he was, um, after he was actually convicted, he tried to apologize to Maria in court, but she walked out. And so what he ended up saying was, I'm very regretful that Carol was killed and for everybody who was hurt. It's not something that I dreamed would ever happen. I'm like, you did this. What do you mean it's something you never dreamed would ever happen? It was very well you were doing. Yeah. Everything that happened was your fault, sir. Everything that happened. And the only reason he didn't get death penalty was because he, uh, his attorneys kind of bargained for if he didn't choose to do trial by jury, then they wouldn't pursue the death penalty was the deal that he made. So he was sentenced by a judge and he was sentenced literally right away. There wasn't any really debate about what happened because there was a witness to every single one of his crimes and it was very obvious what had happened. And but, it's already established that he is a paranoid schizophrenic who has a heroin addiction. It, it's just very like everything about it, about the trial is would have. It's just frustrating to me because even though I could see why Marie would be so not want to listen to that apology because it's just like even though it's so obvious he did it, he still kind of refuses to take responsibility for the fact that everything was his fault. And he says, I'm not a killer, but you are a killer. You killed someone like you held these people hostage. This was all you. And just because you thought there was a conspiracy going on doesn't justify the fact that you murdered somebody. And he even talked about after he got sentenced that he's going to continue to appeal um, the conviction and that he's going to try to prove that there is corruption and a conspiracy against him. And I'm like, okay, fine. You know what? Do whatever you want as long as you're serving the rest of your life in prison. You know, as long as you're just, you know, stuck in there for the rest of your life. Fine by me. <laughs> you have but, freedom to be as stupid as you want behind bars. Yeah, but it's just... Ugh, it's so frustrating. <laughs> that was a weird yeah. It's because I just took a sip of my water. <laughs> but it's just sure. so frustrating to me because even more than the fact that he was, you know, so stuck to his conspiracy opinion, the thing that bothers me the most about people like this, you know, and I've seen this in many other cases, it just bothers me so much when you can tell that there's no, like no remorse. It irritates my sense of humanity because i'm like how could you do that to someone else and just not care like not care at all say that it's not your fault not accept responsibility for the fact that you literally murdered a woman it's just disgusting to me and when somebody shows no remorse it makes it that much easier to just be like yep i hope you spend the rest of your life miserable behind bars see ya you know Mm -hmm. don't have any qualms about that I think a lot of the lack of remorse has to do with the fact that he's like a paranoid schizophrenic, which is probably induced by his heroin addiction. So it's like he is mentally unwell. Like that's something that we have to like take into account where it's like, you know, it's, it's not really him doing the action. And of course it is really him and he really should be punished, but it's like in his mind, like his, his mind is so twisted that he believes he was acting in the right. Yeah, it is kind of interesting because, I mean, he could have tried to plead. Probably he could have tried to plead insanity, but I'm not sure it would have worked because uh, paranoid schizophrenia, I don't think, is grounds for saying that you are can plead insanity, especially because the severity of it was induced of his own doing, you know, by his mm-hmm. own taking of heroin. So, I don't know. It's just... Uh, it, I sometimes find it a lot tougher when it's like there was a case I covered where this this guy was talking about how he like didn't even know what he was doing and like he would have never done it if it wasn't for his mental illness and I'm like okay that's kind of tough because you know you'll never be able to know for sure if he's telling the truth or if he actually is like wish he hadn't done it but I don't know yeah it's it's tough but I I do think that obviously they didn't pursue the death penalty so seems pretty fair to me but something that I kind of wanted to end the case on because I thought it was really you know good and a very sweet thing 
is Maria talked about, um, I got a lot of this information from her I Survived interview, and she talked about the fact that uh, she said, quote, we have to force ourselves to move on and grow about trauma. And she had this little bit where she talked about the fact that trauma can make you into a better or a worse person, and she's trying to let it make her a better person, despite the fact that it took her close to three years to recover from the physical and mental trauma of this situation, but that she's trying to like make the best of her situation and use it in a positive light. And I just think that's so inspiring because Mm -hmm. especially now, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, it's really easy to just be like, "Ugh, life sucks. I feel, I mean, obviously there are serious problems with mental health having to do with quarantine and all that, but it's easy to just feel like life sucks a lot. But then it's very inspiring, at least for me, to look at these people who've literally gone through the worst thing that I could possibly imagine, like something so horrible, who then take it and say, I'm going to use like something absolutely awful that happened to me and try to use it in a positive light. I think that's like a life lesson. You see people who literally survived the worst things imaginable, and yet they're still kicking it and they're still great people who are doing a lot of great work and it's like there's no excuse right now to not try to better yourself and improve yourself and get stuff done marie jordan is just inspiring to me and i think yeah it the i survive stories are always like literally the perfect definition of bittersweet because you're happy that someone survived but you're sad that something so horrible happened to them you know Mm -hmm. but I think on that note, it's time to transition to my favorite segment on this show. Happy things. I the don't know why. At home, I, I don't think you guys know that she has an actual harp. Every <laughs> it's behind her the entire time. Yes, and when I play it, that's why you heard that little bump on the microphone. It's because I'm trying to get my arms around to play my harp in time, mm-hmm. and also speak into the mic at the same time, so I can do the it's little. It's very big. It takes up like half the room. <laughs> half my room it's just a giant heart it's like a it's like a piano sideways (laughs) i have always wanted to play a harp ever since i watched wonder woman with linda carter i've wanted to play the harp but anyway happy things this is a segment of the show where we basically say one good thing that happened in your week or one good thing that's going to happen in your week like next week or something but just yeah a happy thing ended on a good note after we talked about some depressing stuff um andrew would you like to go first or would you like me to go first I would love for you to go first. Okay. Happy thing. Um, I am happy because I started a new book this week called Strange the Dreamer, and I'm really loving it. It's so good. I'm a big fan of fantasy, and it's like everything I could possibly want in a fantasy. And also, um, I have two. Another slightly book-related thing, but um, there's a new podcast out called Harry Potter at Home, and I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. (laughs) And it's basically just people from the movies and people who were in the play, people who've been involved with the franchise overall, reading chapters of Harry Potter, and then they like put it on put it on Spotify and stuff. So I've been slowly rereading Harry Potter as those are coming out, and it's just so wonderful. Like Daniel Radcliffe reads the first chapter, and it's just magical and sweet. And I just forgot how important and how much i love harry potter until i started re-listening to it so that's been a a source of joy in my life every time a new episode comes out i'm like oh my gosh childhood so yeah it's been good what about you i'm happy that i uh, still have the opportunity to work and that i've been getting stuff done and that i got my new camera yes uh, fancy canon videographing it's important. What are you going to film during quarantine? <laughs> no, I've been I've been actually trying to one of like the things I'm working on of course is filming myself, which isn't always like the easiest thing to do. It's like telling a story with one person isn't always easy. Which is why I'm learning. All right, I think it's time to end it there, but thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Horrible Things. It was a little bit of a rough one, but thank you guys for sticking it out. I appreciate you guys. Uh, If you want to support the podcast, feel free to go ahead and leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to find us on a day when it's not a Tuesday, you can go ahead and find us online at Horrible Things Podcasts 
I post little updates and fun stuff like that. But most importantly, thank you guys so much for listening. Feel free to share with your friends, your aunts, your uncles, your neighbors, the new kid that moved in down the street from you who you haven't spoken to yet. Just leave a link to this podcast on the doormat. It's a great icebreaker. As long as you sanitize the the link. As long as you sanitize the link. Preserve social distancing. (laughs) I just want to tell you guys to remember that if you're part of a SWAT team, check the roof for bullet holes. And remember, the CIA, they're not going to investigate themselves for you. Most importantly, guys, don't Don't do do horrible horrible things. things.